You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Fired Up, right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. This is Steve. I host the show each week, and I'd like to welcome you as we get into the political systems here in the United States. I hope everybody is having at least the start of a good week, and hopefully everything will carry forward through the week for you. Uh, I had a very good week last week. Uh, started off with returning home, and I wanted to uh, give a shout out and congratulations to my son Stephen and his new bride, Chiandra. We went down to uh, their wedding ceremony in the Dominican Republic. It was absolutely beautiful. And uh, wishing the newlywed couple all of the blessings and rewards of married happiness going forward. So congratulations, Steve and Shai. And uh, Chandra, welcome to the family. All right, let's get started with the show. Uh, Let's dig in as always. And we'll start with our update on the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, We are now sitting at 33.9 million cases here in the United States and 598,000 deaths have been reported. So we're on the threshold of crossing 600,000 people who have died from the disease. And we have reported a uh, vaccine rate of over 299.9 million people who have received vaccination. Uh, That includes people who have gotten just the first dose and people who have gotten both doses of the two two two-dose vaccines and the single-dose vaccine as well. In the vaccine front, let's stick there for a second. Uh, There's a new kind of COVID-19 vaccination coming out onto the market, and it could be available as soon as this summer. Uh, It's what is known as a protein subunit vaccine, and uh, it works differently from the current types of vaccines that we have authorization for use here in the U.S., but it's based on a well-understood technology and also does not require uh, any special refrigeration. Just as way of background, vaccines work by showing your immune system uh, something that looks like the virus but really isn't. Uh, Consider it an advanced warning so that uh, your body will recognize the real virus if it ever shows up and the immune system would be ready to try and and, uh, handle it. Uh, In the case of coronavirus, uh, that's something that it shows up is one of the proteins in the virus, and it's the spike protein, the thing that when you see a picture of the the COVID virus, you see all those little spikes coming off the center. Um, The uh, vaccines made by Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, and Pfizer Uh, contain genetic instructions for the spike protein, and then it's up to the cells uh, in our bodies to make the protein itself. But this new vaccine works different in that it actually uh, will contain uh, some of the the virus itself, uh, that thus introducing the body to a real sample of the virus. And this is nothing new. Uh, Virus uh, vaccines of this type have been around for quite a while. Uh, The vaccines on the market for hepatitis B and pertussis are also based on this type of technology. So it has a large uh, history behind it. Um, It it really is, you know, while it's a new vaccine, it is not new technology. Uh, It is uh, taking existing technology that has been around for a long time and applying it to this novel coronavirus uh, that is affecting the globe. And as it said, the uh, news report was saying that this virus could be available uh, as early as this summer. And you know, it, it looks very promising according to the scientific research and this article that came out of uh, National Public Radio. One of the experts, Dr. Paul Gepfert, of the University of Alabama at, at Birmingham, uh, was one of the researchers involved in the early studies. He says the issue turned out to be an incorrect uh, calculation on the dose uh, as they were starting out, but they have now uh, 
nail that down and are looking forward to moving ahead with their application to the FDA for uh, their EUA license to administer the vaccine. So, you know, that will give us, assuming that it is successful in getting its uh, emergency authorization, that would give us four vaccines on the market, which would accelerate our vaccine rates and move us uh, more quickly toward that, that level of, you know, group immunity or herd immunity, as it's called, uh, where the coronavirus vaccine would then be relegated to a manageable level, much like how we handle the flu each year. So we look forward with anticipation to that. We will keep an eye on it for you and bring you any news and developments with this new vaccine as it uh, comes to market. So that more good news. And, you know, in, in related to that, you know, it should be noted that uh, infection rates and death rates uh, in the country continue to decline week over week. So we continue to make progress. Additionally, we're seeing a, a lot more venues around the country that are opening up. Restaurants are coming back to life. Hotels are back to booking guests in. Uh, tourist attractions uh, have opened up and are uh, in the process of working through the, the details of expanding their capacity. So slowly, we are working our way back toward uh, what will become a new normal uh, for our country, but something that looks like the normal that we were all used to back in 2019. So that's positive news. Uh, I'm glad to see it. Um, you know, it, it's, it's all to the good. And as long as we keep doing what we need to do, uh, we will you know, keep moving it forward and make things uh, more normal uh, so that we can get back to our regular lives. All right, so moving away from the COVID situation, uh, let's turn to politics. And, you know, as always, you know, this show, politics is what we deal with. And uh, we'll start out in the West Coast with a uh, judge in California who has issued a ban on, or actually has overturned a 32-year-old ban that was in place in California on assault weapons. Uh, this was reported on Saturday from the Associated Press uh, under the, uh, the byline of Don Thompson with the AP. And the uh, article cites that a federal judge has overturned California's three-decade-old ban on assault weapons, calling it a failed experiment that violates people's constitutional right to bear arms. U.S. District Judge Roger Benitez of San Diego ruled on Friday that the state's definition of illegal military-style rifles unlawfully deprives law-abiding Californians of weapons commonly allowed in most other states and by the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, he's quoted as saying, under no level of heightened scrutiny can the law survive. He issued a permanent injunction against enforcement of the law but stayed it for 30 days to give State Attorney General Rob Bonta time to appeal. So let, let's, let's break that first part down. Um, a couple of points to mention in here that uh, Judge Benitez is citing that, um, you know, one, that the assault weapons ban is a failed experiment that violates people's constitutional right to bear arms. Now, you know, we won't get into a lengthy debate on the Second Amendment and the Heller decision here. We've talked about these in the past on this show, but suffice to say that, you know, there, there, there is a case to be made for not allowing, you know, these type of high power, high capacity rifles uh, to be readily available. Um, you know, it's, it's been a subject of much debate. Uh, at both the, the local, state, and federal uh, level. And, you know, he, the, the judge also uh, likened the assault weapons to uh, a Swiss Army knife. And he's quoted as saying, uh, like, like the Swiss Army knife, the popular AR-15 rifle is a perfect combination of home defense weapon 
and homeland defense equipment, good for both home and battle, the judge said in his ruling's introduction. Um, you know, the criticism which came from uh, Governor Newsom said that that comparison, quote, completely undermines the credibility of this decision and is a slap in the face to the families who've lost loved ones to this weapon. We're not backing down from this fight and we will continue pushing for common sense gu gun laws that will save laws, uh, save lives rather, excuse me. Um, you know, and the, the discussion, you know, continues to go back and forth on this issue. You know, assault weapons as defined by the law are more dangerous than other firearms. Uh, that, that goes with, without really saying and are disproportionately used in crimes, mass shootings, and against law enforcement, with more resulting casualties. The state attorney general's office in California argued in barring, barring them furthers the state's important public safety interests. Um, you know, it, it's, it's important to note here that this is not the first of you know, these types of restrictions that have been brought forward. Similar assault weapon restrictions uh, previously have been upheld by six other federal district and appeals courts, the, states, the state argued. Overturning the ban would allow not only assault rifles, but things like assault shotguns, assault pistols, uh, is also part of the statement that was made by state officials. The judge, however, is disagreeing in this case. Uh, this case is not about, and this is quoting Judge Benitez, this case is, case is not about extraordinary weapons lying at the outer limits of the Second Amendment protection. The banned assault weapons are not bazookas, howitzers, or machine guns. Those arms are dangerous and solely useful for military purposes, his ruling said. Instead, the firearms deemed assault weapons are fairly ordinary, popular, and modern. Judge said, uh, the judge said despite the California's ban, there are currently an estimated 185,569 assault weapons registered with the state. And let's note here that the key word there is registered. There's probably a significant number more of unregistered or illegal weapons that are out there and that are in the hands of people who should not have such weapons. You know, um, and, you know, the the gun control uh, lobby and the advocacy groups, um, you know, it has been quick to speak up on this. Um, one gun control advocacy group called the judge's ruling alarming and especially insulting because it was handed down on National Gun Violence Awareness Day. Uh, you know, and, you know, it was quoted that too many families across the nation have lost loved ones in shooting and shootings carried out with assault weapons. They can attest to the reality that these weapons are not like, quote, Swiss Army knives, nor are mass shootings only a very small problem. And this was quoted from Robin Thomas, who's the executive director of the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, a group led by Gabrielle Giffords, the former congresswoman from Arizona who was shot and wounded in a mass shooting 10 years ago. Um, of course, the state is appealing uh, this ruling as well as a prior 2017 ruling uh, uh, banning the, the two-decade-old ban on the sale and purchases of magazines holding more than 10 bullets. So, you know, and, and you know, both of these measures um, should be noted were measures that were championed by um, Governor Newsom when he was lieutenant governor, and they were backed by voters in a 2016 ballot measure. And mark that last section there with a pin, because we're going to talk a little bit about uh, this, this idea of voter-backed measures that seem to uh, have no impact on our elected officials. Um, this is not the first time that we have seen uh, a measure where there is broad and wide popular appeal among the voters that seem to mean nothing to the elected officials, either at the local, state, or federal level, uh, who vote in, you know, in an opposite direction. We've seen this many times before with such matters as, you know, uh, tax cuts and infrastructures we're seeing now, and the 
the uh, COVID relief packages, you know, the the people, us, we, the people, uh, are all you know largely in favor. When I say largely, we're talking numbers in the range of you know 60, 70, 75 percent or more of the the populace, not Democrats, not Republicans, uh, but everybody who is in favor of these these legislations that our elected officials seem to ignore the overwhelming interest by the people and vote along a different path, a different set of objectives, uh, or listening to a different set of voices rather than their constituents. Uh, this, this argument, you know, may seem a little bit trite and, you know, repetitive. I know I've said it before, but the idea is that our elected officials, whether it's your local city council, your mayor, your governor, uh, your state senator, your state congressperson, uh, or your U.S. senator or U.S. congressperson, we send them to office. We send them to serve us, to do the work that we want to get done, that we tell them by our votes, by our comments, by our communications, uh, this is what we want to see happen. So what we've seen time and time again is that the political machine moves in its own orbit around its own you know set of of goals and rules and obligations that are in no way tied to what the people want and you know it this this is something that we the people of this country we need to take this up and go to battle uh, and that's the only way I can put this. We need to go to battle with our elected officials and let them know in no uncertain terms that, you know, we are not satisfied with them ignoring our wishes any longer. Uh, here we are. We're six months into 2021 and, you know, we are, are coming up on the dawn of the 2022 midterm political season. And you can trust and believe that these issues are going to be, you know, hotly discussed. Politicians all up and down the chain will will come out and stand on their soapboxes and say how, you know, they're a voice of the people and they're listening to what the people say and they will get elected and they will do whatever they want to do, regardless of what they promised on the campaign trail. Uh, we have seen this before. We have seen this with both political parties. This is not a blue or red uh, uh, factor. This is a political problem. And it's one that we, the people, need to uh, gather up, come together, communicate our wishes en masse, and let our elected officials know that if they are going to continue to ignore what we sent them to office to do, and it doesn't matter who they are, what party they are, whether they are federal, state, or local, that the people have the power and the will to vote them out of office and replace them with someone who will follow our, you know, our wishes and our requests. And that's not to say that we are, we are blameless in this. Um, we need to be more diligent in holding our officials accountable. We need to be uh, confronting them and communicating with them and you know doing all of the activist things that we can to find out why they are not voting along the lines of what we want them to do uh, who is is pulling the strings on how they are voting and you know are they going to change it or do we have to vote them out of office uh, clearly when you look at the arguments that are going on, you know, whether it's the Senate, the U.S. House, uh, state legislatures around the country, uh, be they Republican or be they Democrat, uh, clearly someone else's voice is in the ear of these politicians. And, you know, we need to to raise the level of our voice to drown out those other voices and let them know this is what you need to do. So call to action, as we always do here on this show, is get engaged with your elected officials. Uh, you, can, you can Google who is my elected official. You can go to ballotpedia.org. You can go to uh, vote.com. 
you can find out who your your local state and federal elected officials are get their email address get their office phone number you know get their their facebook page and start a communication chain with your elected officials to let them know that you know we're watching you now uh like a hawk and we expect that you are going to uh, pay more and closer attention to the wishes of your constituents rather than to any other groups, individuals, or others that you may be listening to. Um, otherwise, you know, we will be searching for candidates who do agree with our views, who do agree to, to follow our wishes, and we will back them and support them and you know, fund them to get into office to remove you. Uh, and it is possible to do this. You know, it, it has been proven, you know, in the 2020 election. It has been proven in the 2016 election at the state and local levels that, you know, if if a candidate is appealing to a broad enough segment of the constituency that they get elected, whether they are Republican or Democrat. Now, you know, I'm not getting into which party is is better or which party is worse in this segment. I, I've, I've talked about that kind of, of issue uh, in prior shows. Um, however, you know, it, it is true for both sides. You know, what we're seeing and and, you know, it, it is clear that our political leaders uh, are, are listening to a different drummer um, than, you know, what we would like them to do. And, you know, you only look, need to look at the news headlines coming out of Washington or coming out of your state capitol to see the arguments and debates about current issues that the people want to, to see happen that don't seem to be making it onto the radar of our elected officials. And that's something that we need to, as, as voters, as constituents, as the electorate, that's something we need to change. And, you know, for you younger people out there, um, you know, this is this is particularly true for you because you need to set the precedent now that, you know, you are engaged with them uh, at at your young age and that you will continue to be engaged with them as you grow older, as you stay engaged with the political process in your neck of the woods uh, going forward. This is not and cannot be a one and done type of thing. This has to be a long term thought out, well-executed strategy. Uh, we need to use the power of social media. We need to use the idea of creating these uh, social media gatherings and you know, create momentum, create interest, create drive to get our political leaders to do what we want. Uh, it's just as simple as that. Uh, you, ha you, especially you know, the, the 18 to 34 year olds, that have grown up with you know social media and you know internet presence and all of these marvelous tools, you have a a unique uh, platform that you can use to gather your numbers, gather your resources, and you know let your elected officials know that here are the people who want you to do this certain thing, and you know let them know by your numbers that you mean business. So that's our call to action. Uh, let's take our break here on the first segment and we will come back after that and talk with some other uh, political issues that are, are still shaping our thinking uh, as we move through 2021. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com where radio is reimagined. And I'm Steve and we'll be right back after the break. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. 
We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. And welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. All right, so let's pick up on the thread of what we were talking about in the first segment. Um, one thing I wanted to, to make mention of is on this show, uh, frequently we have what are called calls to action, where we're, we're giving you, the listener, uh, a, a task to do or homework, if you want to think about it that way. Uh, and something to do in order to increase the level of engagement that we the people have with our elected officials. Going to come at that from a different perspective, uh, if I can, for a minute. And that's going to talk about a a call to action for ourselves. Uh, One of the things that uh, I don't know about you, but I find most frustrating is how, uh, as I was saying in the first segment, Uh, Our political leaders have a tendency to ignore the will of the people uh, and do what uh, other voices are whispering in their ear to do. Uh, And, you know, we have to take accountability. When I say we, I mean we, the voters, uh, have to take accountability for the fact that we don't hold our elected officials accountable. And, you know, as we have seen over the past, uh, you know, few years, and I, and I say going back uh, perhaps, uh, you know, 15 years or so, um, we have seen an increase in the number of states that are changing the way voting happens in this country. Uh, and this was brought to a head uh, most recently in the 2020 election and continues moving forward as we speak. Uh, with uh, more states uh, enacting more uh, restrictions on voter access. And, you know, it, it gets argued that the impact of these voter restrictions are going to be on, you know, people of color uh, in this country and, you know, otherwise uh, you know, people uh, that do not vote Republican, to, to be quite plain about it. Uh, that most of these voter restriction efforts are being driven by Republican-led state legislatures, Republican governors, and so forth. Something to keep in mind, when it comes to elections in this country, uh, the federal government uh, has an extremely limited role. Uh, The election laws are not dictated by the federal government for the most part. Uh, There are laws on the books that Uh, engage with how uh, voting uh, should be carried out and, you know, are there to protect, uh, you know, disenfranchised voters and and other vulnerable groups uh, from, you know, bad voting tactics. Uh, But for the most part, how a vote, uh, how an election rather is conducted is a matter that is handled at the state level. And with that in mind, it becomes clear when you see the number of states that are now enacting um, voter suppression, voter restriction uh, laws in place uh, that that we have been talking about not only on this show, but, you know, the media has been talking about uh, for, you know, more than a decade now. Uh, I found an article that came out of the Brennan Center for Justice and it was published on May 28th of this year, and uh, it uh, gives a roundup of voting laws and voting restrictions. Now, I won't go through the whole article as it is, it is uh, quite a bit long, but I'm gonna hit the high points and we can discuss it uh, in this segment. So uh, it, it, it starts off, you know, across the country, the effort to restrict the vote continues with a wave of bills moving through state legislatures and becoming law. Between January 1st and May 14th, 2021, at least 14 states enacted 22 new laws that restrict access to the vote. The United States is on track to far exceed its most recent period of significant voter suppression, which was in 2011, uh, where by October of that year, 19 restricted laws were enacted in 14 states. 
we've already reached that level and it's it's only May as of when this article was written. Um, more restrictions on the vote are likely to become law as roughly one third of legislatures are still in session. Indeed, at least 61 bills with restrictive provisions are moving through 18 state legislatures. More, more specifically, 31 have passed at least one chamber, while another 30 have had some sort of committee action, such as a hearing, an amendment, or a committee vote. Overall, lawmakers have introduced at least, are you ready for this, 389 restrictive bills in 48 states in the 2021 elected, uh, legislative session. So, you know, it, it's clear, stepping out of the article for a second, it's clear that, you know, there is a concerted effort uh, on restricting access to the vote. Uh, we have seen it, we have talked about it extensively on this show. Uh, we saw it in action and we continue to see it in action in states like Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, uh, and uh, Arizona, Texas, and other locations all over the country. Um, and the, the, the report goes on, and again, this comes from the Brennan Center for Justice, which is a nonpartisan uh, analysis group um, that focuses on you know, issues of law and justice in this country. Uh, Americans' access to the vote is in unprecedented peril, according to them. Um, the, the, but Congress can protect it. The For the People Act, passed by the House and now awaiting action in the Senate, would block many of the state-level restrictions that have been or may soon be enacted into law. Now, remember what I said. While the, the ultimate control over how elections are conducted is handled at the state level, the federal government can uh, impose guidelines on how those elections are carried out, uh, specifically when it comes to practices that may disenfranchise one group or another. So, you know, there, there is ample, uh, ample precedent for federal intervention in, you know, state-run elections, uh, particularly where uh, vote suppression and disenfranchisement occurs. Uh, the article goes on to talk about at least 880 bills with expansive provisions have been introduced in 49 states. And that means with provisions that expand access to the vote um, you know, and, and other features of the election process. Of these, at least 28 bills with expansive provisions have been signed into law in 14 states. At least 115 bills with expansive provisions are moving in 25 states. 45 have passed at least one chamber and 70 have had some sort of committee action. So, you know, we, we, we talk about how much activity is going on in the realm of voter restriction. But in, in these bills, even the ones that you know, are deemed to be restrictive, there are also some elements that are considered expansive, such as you know, an, an additional amount of time for early voting or you know, easing of some restrictions on mail-in voting and, and other things. But clearly, the, the emphasis of the majority of these bills is on cutting back either access to, uh, to, the, to the voting booth or access to mail-in voting, restrictions on the amount of time that can be allowed for early voting, uh, restrictions on how the, the vote is tabulated, uh, and you know, the role of observers. Uh, we, we've seen a lot of uh, restrictions that have been put in place, uh, again, predominantly by Republican parties, because for, for no other reason than Republicans control the majority of state legislatures in this country. And you know the, the states that are seeing these, these restrictions put in place are states where the Republicans uh, are in charge. Um, you know, and we're gonna talk a little bit about what to do with that and continue how we discussed it in the first segment uh, at the end of this one. Um, you know, but what we saw and, and a lot of the flurry of activity we're currently seeing is as a direct result of what we saw happen in the 2020 election, where you ended up with the Republican candidate, Donald Trump, 
getting the highest number of votes uh, that a sitting president has received in a national election in the history of this country. And yet, he still lost the election by about uh, almost 8 million votes to Joe Biden. So as a result of that, the Republican Party has doubled and redoubled its efforts to reduce or restrict the number of primarily Democratic voters uh, that have access to voting in many of these uh, battleground states and in many of the Republican control states where the margins were very, very close. Uh, so what we have seen is a range of voter restrictions aimed at reducing the number of hours, reducing access, restricting um, what can be done while voters are waiting in line. Uh, you know, uh, lots of things that make the process of voting more difficult in this country. Um, primarily, one of the things that we've noticed is that mail-in voting has received an, an overwhelming amount of attention in these new efforts. At least 16 mail voting restrictions in 12 states will make it more difficult for voters to cast mail ballots that count. Uh, six laws shorten the time frame for which for voters to request a mail ballot, including a Georgia law that will reduce the window by more than one half. Five laws make it more difficult for voters to automatically receive their ballot or ballot application, either by making it harder to stay on absentee voting lists or by prohibiting officials from sending applications or ballots without the voter's affirmative request. Uh, nine laws in eight states make it more difficult for voters to deliver their mail ballots, including a law in Arkansas that makes the in-person ballot delivery deadline earlier. Six laws that restrict assistance to voters in returning their mail ballots, and four laws that limit the availability of mail ballot drop boxes. Three laws impose stricter signature requirements for mail voting, and three others impose stricter or new voter ID laws for mail voting. Uh, so let's jump out of the article there and, and break that down a little bit. So what we're seeing is a recognition by the legislatures in charge, again, predominantly Republican, uh, overwhelmingly predominantly Republican, uh, that the Democrats made expansive use of early voting and mail-in voting uh, in order to achieve the large number of votes that they, they recorded in many states. Uh, and uh, as a result, uh, we saw you know, the, the swing of the Senate elections in Georgia, for instance, uh, to the Democratic Party in a traditionally Republican voting state. So as a, as a response to that, the Republicans have focused a lot of attention on mail-in ballot restrictions. Uh, the other thing that we have seen is restrictions on early voting. Uh, in some cases, cutting down the number of days in half. Uh, in, in other cases, cutting down the hours in which early voting can happen uh, to a time period that makes it more difficult for people who work in order to get to the polls, in order to vote without having to take time off from work to do it. Um, you know, there have been a lot of, of changes. Texas in one segment restricted the number of drop boxes to one per county. And as we talked about that on this show, if you've ever been to Texas, some of the counties, it can take you four hours to go from one side to the other. Uh, so if you have to drive four hours to put your ballot into a drop box, uh, that is a, a difficulty that many people may not be able to overcome, thereby dropping the number of ballots that will be delivered uh, through that means. Um, you know, states have, other states have limited the availability of polling places. Uh, while Montana permitted more locations to qualify, for reduced polling place hours, Iowa reduced its election day hours, shortened the early voting period, and limited election officials' discretion to offer additional early voting locations. And Georgia reduced early voting in many um, counties by standardizing early voting days and hours. 
Um, so that you know, the the article from the Brennan Center goes through in, in detail, and I'll I'll put a link to it uh, on the Facebook page uh, for for this show uh, that will be available by the time this show airs um, for you, and you know it it's it just goes on and on but you know as many of the restrictive bills that there are there are as i mentioned some expansive bill, bills that have been enacted or are being enacted uh despite the wave of voter suppression efforts in 2021 some states have enacted legislation to make it easier for americans to access the ballot box these laws are are focused on expanding early voting making mail voting easier and improving accessibility for voters with disabilities. Virginia has enacted nine expansive bills this session, the most of any state. At least seven laws would expand the availability of early voting. For example, New Jersey and Kentucky codified in-person early voting and Massachusetts extended early voting through June of this year. Uh, at least eight laws in six states make mail voting easier. That includes five laws in four states that expand mail ballot drop box access and drop off locations, and five laws in four states that codify procedures so that voters learn of and can fix mistakes and defects in their mail ballots. Uh, at least six states have enacted eight laws that seek to make voting more accessible for voters with disabilities. Washington and New York restored voting rights to people with past convictions so that every American living in the community is eligible to vote. Two states made voter registration easier for young voters. New York expanded automatic voter registration to include the State University of New York, while Virginia expanded pre-registration to 16-year-olds. So, you know, there, there, are, there are positive things um, as well as negative things. Uh, some of the, the more uh, noteworthy ones are laws that would allow for automatic voter registration. Uh, some that would automatically register you when you uh, complete your application for a driver's license, for instance, or when you enroll at certain colleges. So there are, there are a lot of elements to this effort. Um, and it, it bears on us to pay attention to what our states are doing. And as I said in the first segment, we need to be vigilant. We need to be watching what our state and local legislatures are doing with regard to how we access and exercise our right to vote. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it should be noted. And we'll, we'll dive into this for a little bit here. So in, in many of the the articles and the uh, broadcasts you've seen in the mainstream media. It talks about how these laws uh, target and impact uh, people of color uh, and communities with large numbers of minority voters, uh, primarily because these voters tend to vote Democratic. But it should be noted that these voter restrictions are also going to impact Republican voters. Uh, particularly those in rural areas or areas that are distant from polling places. You know, I go back to Texas. If you've got one polling place or one Dropbox location in Harris County, which is, um, I believe, the largest county in Texas, uh, it doesn't matter, you know, what color you are. It's still going to be a four-hour uh, go to in order to go drop a ballot off, no matter how you get there or or who you are. So it can have as big an impact on Republican voter turnout as it does on Democrat. But Republican legislatures seem to be willing to gamble on that. Um, similarly, in in other areas where uh, expansions are happening, uh, these expansions will also. Uh, play a part in Republican voter turnout as well as Democratic voter turnout in that, you know, Republican voters will also be uh, easier for them to access the polls and and get there and have longer hours and so forth. So, you know, it, it like I said, it bears us watching how this gets executed uh, by our local and state legislatures uh, to make sure that 
you know, voter access, the right to vote, and our exercise of this right is handled in the most fair and conscientious way that we can. And if, if this is not the case, then you know, whatever actions we need to take in order to, to true up the system, to make it more fair and equitable for everyone, Democrat and Republican, minority and non-minority, uh, we need to do that. We need to, to pressure our elected officials to reject any voter restriction that is going to impact, you know, across broad swaths of the population. Um, you know, uh, obviously we, we want to reject any legislation that's going to discriminate against people of color and poor people and, and disenfranchised. But we also want to make sure that, you know, rural voters and, you know, voters in distant locations have as equal and equitable access to the polls as everyone else, uh, even if they are of a tendency to be more Republican than Democrat, depending on which way you lean politically. So, you know, it, it's, it's again, our call to action is to stay vigilant, to do our diligence, to dig wider, dig deeper, uh, make sure we understand what our local legislatures, what our governors are doing, what our state senators and state reps are doing about the access to the polls for all of the people in the states. Um, and, you know, by extension, we also need to be vigilant to see how, you know, districts are going to be redrawn. One of the things that occurs now that we have completed the 2020 census is that state legislatures are actively working on redistricting, reapportioning the, the territories assigned to members of Congress, the number of Congress people that each uh, state will have, and, and so forth, uh, as required under the Constitution. And we need to make sure that, that we exercise as much influence over our elected officials as possible to reduce the possibility of gerrymandering, uh, you know, district packing and, and other techniques that adversely uh, skew the, the voter uh, representation in our government. And if you don't think that's a problem, realize that in, in the, the states that are Republican controlled, uh, only about 30% of the population is Republican but they control more than 60% of the votes. So there is an outsized overrepresentation of certain demographic groups because of gerrymandering, because of the way that districts are drawn and packed. Uh, and this is something that we, the citizens, need to be engaged with. We can't just let our elected officials just you know, have free reign to draw it any way they want. You know, these redistricting uh, proposals uh, typically have a public comment phase where this information is, is posted and uh, it, it allows for public access, public viewing, and public comment. We need to make sure we take advantage of that. We need to make sure that we are looking at these districts, are registering our complaints if we think that they are not being fairly drawn or that they do not fairly represent the, the populations in an area. Uh, we need to uh, oversee the reapportionment of uh, federal legislators, particularly Congress people, uh, based on the census results. Uh, and you know, we need to make sure that all of these things are done in the bright light uh, of reality and not done in you know, darkened back rooms uh, by groups of people with no accountability to us in the public. So, you know, it, it is a busy time for we the people, uh, but it is a time that is absolutely necessary for us to exercise our influence and our control over our elected officials. We say this all the time on this show. We have to be vigilant. We have to stay in communication with our elect elected officials all up and down the line from local to federal. Uh, in order to let them know that we are watching, that we are uh, holding them accountable, 
and that if they are not going to do what we sent them to their elected office to do, that we do not have a problem with showing them the door and finding someone else who will do the job that we want done. So that's our, that's our standing call to action, people. That's what we talk about here on this show all the time. It's about being engaged. It's about being alert. It's about being vigilant. It's about doing the research, doing our homework, you know, digging wider, digging deeper, as I always say. So that's going to wrap up this week's show. I thank you for listening, listening as always. Uh, if you have any comments or questions uh, or you want to challenge me on, on something that I have put out there, please send an email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com. Uh, I'm always looking for uh, listener feedback. Uh, please spread the word to your friends about the show. Uh, note that you can find us on SoundCloud. If you go to SoundCloud and search for Fired Up, you will find our podcast there. Uh, as I said, we, we've got nearly 80 of them out there. And I'm, I'm always happy to engage with conversations on any of the material that I broadcast. Please stay safe out there. If you have yet to be vaccinated, take advantage of the opportunity. It's available to everyone. Get vaccinated. Uh, it, it makes everything that you need to do a whole lot easier. Uh, and it's safer for us, for your loved ones, for your community, and for your country. That's going to do it. I thank you all, as always, for listening. This is Steve. You're listening to Fired Up Radio right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined, and I look forward to speaking with all of you again in seven days. Wherever you stand, I'm calling every woman, calling every man. We're the generation we can't afford to wait. The future started yesterday, and we're already late.